is Our American Stories. And today, in honor of Father's Day, we're telling the stories about fathers and the impact they have on their sons' and daughters' lives. In show business, parenthood often takes a back seat to fame, and families can be broken apart because of it. Money and exposure can turn parents away from their own children, and our headlines are full of these disaster stories of broken love. But every now and then, a star will buck this trend, becoming a glimpse of hope in the Hollywood world. When you talk about the most influential comedic actors of the 1980s, a handful come to mind. John Candy, Eddie Murphy, Steve Martin, Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray. But you could never finish this list without mentioning Rick Moranis. For a brief time in Hollywood, Moranis played every stereotypical putz, schmuck, nerd, whatever you'd like, whichever word you'd like. He played the nerd on the big screen like no one else. He starred in movies like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Spaceballs, Little Shop of Horrors, and of course, Ghostbusters. And just when it seemed Moranis would become a permanent fixture of comedy filmmaking, he disappeared. In 1991, his wife, Ann Belsky, died after a long battle with breast cancer, leaving Rick and their two young children behind. Moranis only appeared in a few more movies, leaving the glamour of public life to raise his children as a stay-at-home single dad. He discussed this chapter of his life and how he fought through it in one of his rare interviews. Stuff happens to people every day, and they make adjustments in their lives um, for all kinds of reasons. And um, there was nothing unusual about um, what happened or, or what I did, um, I think the reason that people were intrigued by the decisions I was making and sometimes seemed to have almost admiration for it had less to do with the fact that I was doing what I was doing and more to do with what they thought I was walking away from, as if what I was walking away from had far greater value than anything else that one might. The decision in my case to become a stay-at-home dad, which people do all the time, um, I guess wouldn't have meant as much to people if I had had a very simple kind of make a living existence and decided, you know what, I need to spend more time at home. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this part time and then work out of my house to do this and this and this. Nobody would pay any attention to it. But because I came from celebrity and fame and what and what was a peak of a career, that was intriguing to people. And to me, it wasn't that it wasn't anything to do with that. It was just work and it was time to make an adjustment. My goodness, what kind of clarity. And by the way, the kids' lives are saved because of that kind of clarity. Because fame, as we learn here on Our American Stories, and my goodness, we do our share of fame stories here, and the consequences of fame. And that's about a half, almost half of our music stories and our art stories don't end well. And we don't do anything here but pay tribute to the difficulties of fame here on this show. We don't make light of it. Moranis keeps his children's names a secret to make sure they have normal and fruitful lives. That hasn't stopped them from having some brushes with fame. My earliest memories are of being with them in public situations where people would get all excited because they were seeing a famous person, and it was me, and my kids just like were like, why are you so excited? It's just him. So they they had a really good perspective on celebrity and fame very, very early on. And 
I actually tell this story all the time. I took my son, he was really young, to a basketball game at Madison Square Garden. And sitting in front of us was Derek Jeter. And he was sitting, actually, and this is way, way before Alex Rodriguez was going to be on the New York Yankees. He was sitting with Alex Rodriguez. I didn't know. I knew who Jeter was. I had no idea. My kid knew it all. I think he was four or something or five. And um, they had just... He, he really followed the Yankees closely, and they had just hired Chuck Knobloch or something to play second base. And so Derek Jeter turned around, recognized me, got kind of like, oh, hi, hi. And I went, hi. And my son said, have you met Chuck Knobloch yet? And, and <laughs> Jeter looked at him like, who is this kid? But, but that was my son. He was just comfortable around anybody. And I think the reason he was was because he just didn't buy why people were getting excited around me. So fame meant nothing to the kid, but again, he had a very unusual father. Fame didn't mean much to his dad, and so that just rubbed off on the children. Moranis never thought he was special, just as a single father with a job to do. And for all the single fathers out there, he offers the following advice. I happen to have had a a really, really happy, wonderful childhood, and I think if you do, you try and recreate a lot of it. And if you don't, you try and not make those mistakes. <laughs> so I was trying to recreate a lot of um, the joy that I experienced as a kid and do it in a slightly different context because it was you know, years later, 30 years later or whatever, and it was New York City as opposed to the suburbs of Toronto. Kind of decided to follow the adage of 90% or whatever of success is, is is showing up or being there. And I found that to be true, that just being there was was the best thing that I could do. That's what I experienced with my mother at home all the time. And so when my kids came home, there was music and there were lights on and there were great smells coming out of the kitchen. And it was just always a joyful place to be. And that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted to create. And lucky for him and lucky for him that he had the good sense to follow that same pattern that he'd inherited. Some people squander that. They just do. Or they take it for granted. But Moranis' oddly endearing and fussy behavior made him perfect for the role of the lovable father on the big screen. And now after his children have grown up and gone off to college, he's shown he's perfectly capable of playing that role in real life too. So on this Father's Day, you single dads whether through the death of a loved one, a divorce, or something else. You play a huge role in your kids' lives, too. And do it. If you're not, start. If you are, keep up the good work. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Rick Moranis' story about fatherhood.
is Our American Stories, and we're dedicating the whole show today to fathers. Not every father, by the way, is actually a child's biological parent, and we're going to be digging into many different ways people are fathers to children. There are stepfathers, uncles, mentors, coaches, you name it. Lots of men step into the breach for deceased or absent or inadequate biological fathers. One man who's taken this to an extraordinary level is one of my personal heroes, John Croyle. John was a world-class football player for Coach Bear Bryant at the University of Alabama. But he had a different calling in life than playing in the NFL. Right out of college, John started the Big Oak Ranch, a Christian home for children needing a chance. Over the decades, John, his bride, their children, and the house parents at Big Oak Ranch have taken in and raised over 2,000 children abandoned by their biological parents. And by the way, John has some extraordinary children. His son, Brody, played and quarterbacked at the University of Alabama and then went to the NFL and played with the Kansas City Chiefs. He's now back at the ranch. And John's beautiful daughter, who is a world-class athlete herself, a basketball player, is at the ranch too, and she's running the school there and running it the way you'd imagine a coral would run things. Well, here's John sharing a story from a few years back, a tragic story, but one that really shows men how to be real fathers. Five years ago, phone call. Hello? Second brother was calling me. I said, what's up? He said, where are you headed? I said, work. He said, I know where two kids are. I said, okay. Where are they? First question in the Bible is, where are you? I figured if that's God's first question, it might not be a bad one for me to ask. I said, where are they? He said, I arranged with me. I went to the steel truck stop in Steel, Alabama. I walked in, and the corner's a round table with this woman, her sister, and two small children. I walked up. She said, are you him? I said, I guess. I'm only him here. And she said, you that guy that I see on TV that gives kids chances. I said, yes, ma'am. That's what we do. Well, here's my boy. He's 11. He just got back from a three-week tour of Florida with some friends of mine. Here's my little girl. She's 10. She, just, she didn't go to Florida. She visited a friend of mine every other weekend in Anniston. And I looked at the kids, and I've done this a long time. And I can spot an orphan. It's physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. And I can also spot a child that's been abused. And I looked at them, and they have what we call shark eyes. Dead, empty, lifeless eyes. And I said, how you doing? And then it hit me. She sold them on the internet to pedophiles. And I said, I want y'all to listen to me. I have four promises. I love you. I will never lie to you. I'll stick with you till you're grown. There's boundaries. Don't cross them. The girl went to the girl's ranch. The boy went to the boy's ranch. A month later, the little girl's in the van riding down the uh, Interstate 59 with her house dad. We built a 5,400 square foot home. We put a godly couple in the home. They'd give them eight kids and they'd raise them up. Just old school, raise them up stuff. And it ain't rocket science. And she tugs on her house dad's sleeve. He said, what, baby? She said, can I ask you a question? He said, sure, what? You really love me? Can I sidebar a moment? Every child in your care asks that question every morning. Dad, will you love me if I get pregnant? Dad, will I still be your boy if I get a DUI? Am I still going to be your boy? You're still going to love me. 
They ask it every day. If I screw up, are you still going to come get me? <laughs> that's the time you play like God. You go get them no matter what. Because that's what real men do. When they were sitting there and the dad said, why, baby? She said, I need to tell you something. She started wringing her hands. She said, do you remember? Do you remember those two men I told you about? He said, yeah. They really hurt me. Once they were hurting my brother, and he was screaming, and he was bleeding, and I was kicking them, and I was hitting them, trying to make them stop, and they wouldn't stop. Then they went and got the camera, and they hurt us all over again. And then they tied us to, taped us to a chair, and they, they made us watch them do ugly things to our mama. When I found out I took off the school, I picked her up and I hugged her for about three minutes. I backed away from her and I said, do you remember those four promises I made to you? She said, about loving me? I said, yeah. She said, yes, sir, I remember those. I said, you get one extra promise. And if you want to put my life down into one sentence, this is it. I took her face in my hands. I said, as long as I breathe, no one's ever going to hurt you like that again. First words out of our mouth, thank you. Nope. Appreciate it. Nope. First words of our mouth. Would you go tell my brother? Even then, she had it. Whatever that it is. Can't define it, but she had it. I found the boy. I put him in my truck. I looked at him. I said, I know. He said, you do. He thought I knew him and three boys were smoking out behind the barn. <laughs> Sometimes you just be real quiet. You'll learn a whole lot more than asking 10 million questions. And then when I said, no, that's not it. God, I can't believe I told you. But anyway... I said, no, your sister told me. When I said that, his hands instantly started shaking. His lips started quivering. His eyes filled with tears. He just hung his head. I said, do you want to talk about it? And I'll never forget his words. I can't. I said, look at me, boy. As long as I breathe, no one's ever going to hurt you again. Now, fast forward to a little over two years ago. We're in South Alabama. We're deer hunting. We're in a tree stand. He's 13 years old, never been on a deer hunt. I'm teaching him, trying to. We're sitting there. He drops the binoculars in the tree stand. He drops the gun. Now, those of you that don't hunt, deer can hear real good. <laughs> then he, where are the deer? I said, they're about eight miles down that road. You know, right over there, you could see them running. The whole herd was running out the valley. So anyway... I said, look, just take the binoculars and see if you can see something. So he took binoculars. He's going, <gasps> now I'm going to be honest with you. I said to myself, there's no way in Hades he sees a deer. There ain't no way. He's going, there's a cow. Can we shoot it? I said, we're not hunting cow, boy. So then I said, okay, just keep looking. 30 minutes later, the deafest, dumbest doe walks out. She didn't have any eardrums. She came out and somebody had spilled some corn out there or I mean, some stuff. <laughs> but anyway, she was munching on the corn. <laughs> then he gets ready, to, gets ready to shoot. And I said, somebody's going to get killed. <laughs> and then we loaded the gun. <laughs> you know, he missed. Of course he missed. 
No one had ever told him. He missed the mark because no one showed him. He fell on the floor of the tree stand. He stared at the hardwood, um, at the plywood. His face was just like his eyes were wide open and the plywood splinters right here and he's just staring. And then once again, it's one of those moments, a wall hit me. When he missed his whole life, he had been told he was sorry, worthless, no count piece of human garbage. And when he missed, he proved everybody right. What a child hears repeatedly, they eventually believe. I picked him up. I said, look at me. He said, yes, sir. I said, no, look at me. Yes, sir. I said, the neat thing about God is he always lets you reload. And that deer ain't moved yet. <laughs> when the bullet went over that deer's head, she threw her head up and she was so stupid, she turned sideways to make sure we had a better shot. <laughs> so the second time, he relaxed. He comes in here. He drops that dough. I wish you'd seen him drag that dough into camp. He swole up. The dough weighed more than he did. I said, you want to help? You, you just carry the gun in the bucket. I got the deer. He comes dragging it in. The reason he was so proud is that morning when I said, this day, you're the man. This day, you're feeding your family. This day, you're taking care of your little sister. This day, you are a man. And there you have it. I think you get a taste of why John Quarles, my hero. If you met him, he'd be yours, period. And a father to 2,000 plus children. A phone rings, John Quarles answers it, and he steps in. No questions asked, no questions unanswered. Love always at the end of that phone. This is Lee Habib, John Quarles' story, Father's Day. All father's stories, every kind, here on Our American Stories. American stories and Father's Day is coming upon us and we have a special show for you and we had a special one for Mother's Day as well a full two-hour show and it was terrific and today we're hearing from all kinds of people but some right here on the staff and today Faith brings us something personal a letter to her father as we were driving home I sat in the car in the passenger seat wringing my hands, not knowing how to bring up a difficult conversation I knew I needed to have with you, something I knew I needed to share, something that I had done that I wasn't very proud of. I didn't want you to be disappointed in me or think less or perhaps even love me less. 
But as I fumbled the words out of my mouth and tried to hold back tears, you looked at me and you said, Faith, you know that no matter what, I'm always going to love you, right? That as God wills, that you were going to love me no matter what I did, no matter the situation I was in. You told me that if one day I came home pregnant, that you would help me work through it. That if I needed help, you would be there for me. And that you wouldn't stop loving me. Not always perfectly, of course. But that was probably one of the sweetest moments we've had. If I'm being honest, we have not always seen eye to eye on things. But there is one thing that I have never doubted. Is that you would absolutely do anything for me and my brothers and sisters if you had to. If you had no job, I know you'd dig ditches. If we had no food, I know you'd give me yours. And I know that you'd lay down your life for our family. You're the hardest worker I know. Your work ethic is incomparable to most people. You work hard, then you come home and you spend time with the family, then you go to church. And I've never seen anyone work as hard as you. I'm thankful that you work hard and you play hard. Kickball at the park. Baseball, setting up soccer games with us and our friends, going on runs together and turning it into a race at the end. I know that we've had our ups and downs. We are, we are very different people, but perhaps it's because we are more similar than I would like to realize at times. Dad, the times that you've definitely affected me the most are actually the times when you failed. That might come as a shock, but... It's not just when you failed, but when you've acknowledged your failure. When you've come to me and asked for my forgiveness, for something you've said, for something you've done. When you've admitted to wrong. I know that it's hard for people in general, and especially for a father who's supposed to be leading a family. But those have been the times. It's grown my respect for you, your humility and leadership. When you've acknowledged your wrongs instead of just moving past it, it sets a kind of example that every leader should be. When you come to me and telling that you shouldn't have said what you said, and that you're sorry, that you still love me, and that you hope I can forgive you. Dad, that's when I'm most proud to be your daughter. And perhaps it's because I'm emotional and probably your most emotional kid, but... When you acknowledge hurts and pains, when you've listened to me, and you've been there for me, it's meant the world. Not many girls in this world have dads who love and care for them as much as you do. Even in the times where I've been the most difficult. When I was struggling with my eating disorder and my depression in high school, you were at the meetings with the counselors trying to get me back up on my feet. You were worried sick, wishing that you could take it away. Dad, I'm sorry for how I've hurt you. Thank you for loving me. For helping me out financially when I need it. For teaching me what it means to grow up to be a godly woman, even though you're a man. I should probably call you more than I do. But Dad, I do consider you my friend. I enjoy coming home and going on runs with you. And although I beat you when we race now, it's still fun to have a competition. The work ethic that you taught me probably is what got me through college. There were many times where you made me laugh when I was crying. You were always ready to give a hug. 
when I needed one. Something that has really amazed me is how much other people respect you. How much that speaks of your character. When I went to your work and everyone around me knew I was your daughter, they would just praise you. And I know, of course, boss's daughter better make a good impression. But at the same time, they were, they were genuine. Because you're a man of integrity. Dad, I know I'd like to think that I'm all grown up at times. Of my big girl job. But I know you're always going to see me as just your little girl. And probably in high school, that would have bothered me. But now, I don't see it as such a bad thing. Daddy's girl can often sound like a spoiled, rotten princess. And I know that I'm not a little girl anymore. But the fact that I get to call you daddy and be your girl, I'm proud. I remember when I had my first broken heart. Took me way too long to get over it. I was sharing with you and telling you what happened or things that I remembered, pains that come back, and you would just listen. And all the hurtful things that had happened, you would counteract with compliments or with assurance and encouragement. Faith, that guy was just an idiot. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> I kind of knew that by now. But I remember one time when you were really disappointed in me. And you looked at me and you said, Faith, as much as I want, and as much as I would like, I can't protect you from everything. Because I can't protect you from your own actions. And you didn't say it angrily, or even in a stern voice. But that's when I knew that I broke your heart. But even in that moment, I didn't doubt for a second that you still loved me. In fact, it was in that moment where I believed it the most. Because you knew if you could, you would. I remember looking you in the eyes when we were arguing once, and you saying, don't you understand how much I love you? And that's how you've so amazingly displayed the love of our Heavenly Father. That even in the times where I've been rebellious or hurtful or even hateful, or I've disappointed or wounded you and Mom, you've loved me unconditionally as best you could. Your love for me has given me a foretaste of what God's love is for all of his children. That's been one of the best gifts you've given to me. Well, I wish I could give you a hug on this Father's Day. I hope that you know how much I love you, appreciate you, respect you, miss you, how much I want to make you proud. I know you haven't always been the perfect dad, but I know you sure try to be the best that you could be. And that's pretty darn great. I love you, Dad. And that's just beautiful faith. And any father wants to hear those words. And if you aren't or haven't, maybe you haven't been the father you need to be. And listening, big part of it, guys. Learn to do it and to love unconditionally. Hardest part of all, you got to do it. And you just heard why. And again, thank you, Faith. I know it wasn't an easy thing to do, but thanks for doing it. And here on Father's Day, I know there's some tears and eyes, and even some people here I'm not used to seeing tears in the eyes of on this show. So thanks for that, Faith. And I can't protect you from everything. I can't protect you from your own actions. I'm going to keep that in my little arsenal for my... My little girl, 
my little darling. This is Our American Stories. It's Father's Day, and we're going to hear from every kind of father here, because some are married, some are single, some have lost a bride, some have suffered divorce, some father out of wedlock. Fathers matter. My goodness, we just heard it. Fathers matter. Faith's story, her father's story, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and with Father's Day coming up, we're talking about dads for the entire show. Some men are excited from the moment they learn they're going to become dads, but some have different reactions. I know I've had buddies who are just like mortified, just mortified, not excited, terrified. Here's a story we originally featured for Down Syndrome Awareness Month, but it's as much about fatherhood as about Down Syndrome. It's about an Air Force pilot who graduated at the top of his class, married a girl he knew since middle school, and had their first daughter, Pepper, a seemingly perfect man who wanted to protect that perfect image for himself. ESPN's Tom Rinaldi brings us this story. We were trying to have a little sister or a little brother, or brother definitely, uh, for Pepper at that time, so... Prenatal tests showed their baby would have Down syndrome, a condition caused by an extra chromosome that delays and limits the ways a child develops, both physically and mentally. I, uh, I did everything I could to try and force her into having an abortion. What did you say to her? My main concern was what people would think about me, you know, as a, you know, you know, man, a pilot or, you know, Air Force officer, whatever, you know, that, um, you know, what weakness inside me, you know, caused that. What was your fear? That he would leave. That he would just run away. I've got genetically superior genes. I'm a winner with winner's blood. Learning you're going to have a child with Downs is like experiencing a death. That's what I felt like, like I was getting a broken baby. All I could think was, why me? I mean, I, I love this man more than life itself. So I had to think, what if? What if I aborted her? What if I got rid of her? And I remember a little voice in my head saying, no way, it's not happening, no way. I mean, I contemplated it for maybe an hour. He did for months. She couldn't, she couldn't do it. Basically, that you know, get on board or, or don't. Paisley White was born on March 16, 2007. I remember the day she was born, and I remember my mom saying, you know, 
oh, she doesn't really look like she has Down syndrome. And I told her, you know, she was lying. You could definitely tell that she had Down syndrome. It really felt like I had lost a baby, even though I had one sitting right in front of me. And I think it was after she started feeding that I said, she's good, she's perfect. For Heath, who stopped running competitively for several months, there was an emotional disconnection from his wife and newborn baby. The turning point, I had her down and I tickled her and uh, she laughed and giggled at me and tried to push me away. And her laughing and smiling and reacting with me, you know, that's when I realized that she's just like any other kid. She's my kid. What goes through you as you recall that moment now? Happiness about that moment that I was actually able, you know, Paisley was able to change me. The change came partially in an idea, a way to show the world his new daughter and find his place beside her. Heath began to run again, this time pushing Paisley. Why did you want to do it? To let everybody see that I was proud of her. Nobody knew, you know, the way I felt before she was born. And if I can keep one family, one person, from having to live with the guilt and almost making the mistake that I almost made, it's going to be worth the pain that, that Paisley will feel later in life, knowing the way I felt. March 2nd, 2008. Just before Paisley's first birthday, they ran their first marathon in Little Rock, Arkansas. I remember buckling her in. She was so little, and we had her all bundled up, and she was flopping all around in there. We were probably um, 100 yards from the finish line, and he saw us, and he stopped, and we were like, what are you doing? And he said, I'm going to walk her across the finish line. It was just me and her. There was nothing between us. Looking back on the pictures of, you know, running with her, that's a, you know, a good memory. Look at your medal! Come on, good job! That finish was just a beginning. Over the next four years, finding time away from his work as an FBI agent, Heath ran more and more races with Paisley. 5Ks, 10Ks, nine more marathons across the country, including a race in his hometown, Wascom, Texas, in front of his family who were waiting at the finish line. 71, Heath White, and number 72, Paisley White, at 1952. How'd you do? We won. On that day, she was number one. And they've never gotten a first place before. That couldn't have been a better spot for it to happen. I don't know if you're fast as a bird. Still, all the medals and miles won't erase the future Heath's daughter may face. Let's see. Whoa, that's a big splash. What's your fear? My fear is one day somebody calling her retarded. 
somebody using that word in her presence or making fun of her because she's different and having to explain to her, you know, about society and then having to build her self-esteem back up and let her know how much I love her. That's one reason why, in the midst of all the races and runs, when Paisley was 18 months old, he sat down to write the letter he's never read to his daughter. Before you were born, I only worried about how your disability reflected on me. Now, there's no better mirror in the world. It was just my way of, you know, repenting. Chances are that she never would have known the way I felt before she was born. I went through the entire grieving process. You know, that could have been my dirty secret that I kept with me forever. But I didn't want it to be, you know, a secret. I wanted her to know that, you know, she was everything to me. Heath and Jennifer had a third child in 2010. Another girl named Tex. And they are currently expecting their fourth yet another little girl. Hey, you're like a little Eskimo. Look, silly girl. On March 4th this year, at 38, Heath White prepared to push Paisley, now five years old, in the place their journey began, Little Rock, Arkansas. It would be their final time. Five, four, three, This last race will complete a goal, running together for 321 miles, a number with a deeper meaning. The 321 is significant because Down syndrome is the third replication of the 21st chromosome. Being able to hit that, you know, on our last marathon together, it was a number that meant something to both she and I. Why stop now? It's bigger than Paisley. Paisley can play, Paisley can go. Paisley doesn't need me to push her. Initially, Heath had said, I don't want to take care of somebody for the rest of my life. I think now he looks at it and says, oh my goodness, I may not get to take care of her the rest of her life. The moment you cross the line, how would you describe it? That one was tough. I had a hard time catching my breath. And I don't know whether it was some physical exertion, but it was pretty emotional knowing that it was the last time. Hey, buddy. Over the couple of years, we'd become a team. Can I have a kiss? I love you. Everything I've done, everything I've tried to accomplish, it was never going to be perfect my love for Paisley is perfect. You're my light in the dark. And it's a privilege to be your dad. Love always, Daddy. And thanks so much for that, Heath, and for Tom Rinaldi at ESPN. You're my light in the dark. It's a privilege to be your dad. All dads, I hope, hold that in their heart for their little girls and their boys. 
And if anything, fatherhood teaches us to go from selfishness to selflessness. And so it's a privilege for all of us who call ourselves dads to be dads. Here on Father's Day, Heath White's story, his daughter Paisley's story, here on Our American Stories. story and you're listening to George Strait. Nobody sings a song straighter. Straight as an arrow is the way George sings and I heard George Jones once say that about George Strait so that's pretty high praise. And this is the story of a song and we love doing these these periodic segments for you and that song that you were just listening to Love Without End Amen was George's first ever multi-week number one and that song is Love Without End Amen. And by the way, some of the other stories of song we've done are There Goes My Life, the song that catapulted Kenny Chesney's career, I Drive Your Truck, uh, Gimme Shelter, which is one of my favorites, Another Brick in the Wall, I think that's Jesse's, along with Light My Fire, which is just a terrific rendition of how that song came to be, musically, by Ray Manzarek. And Jesus Take the Wheel, how that song became a hit, and Why Me, My Lord, Chris Christopherson, sitting in with Willie Nelson at a songwriters conference and talking about how that song practically came over him. And Chris wrote it, and it became his best-selling record of all time. But now back to Love Without End, Amen. And this song was written by legendary songwriter Aaron Barker. And he also wrote hits Baby Blue, Easy Come, Easy Go. Barker wrote this song after going through a rough patch with his teenage son. My son was 16, and... He was only, when I, when he was born, I had been 17 for four days. So we kind of grew up together. And about the time he hit his teens, as you will learn soon with your children, you really, there's a time where you just can't be their friend all the time, and, and you really have to be the dad. And that was a, a really sad revelation for me. I, I realized that if I didn't be his dad, things were going to go bad real quick. And... uh I'd gotten in a discussion with him that wasn't a pleasant one. He'd gotten in some car trouble. And I just, I really got on him. And my dad had left when I was very young, so for a period of time I had no father influence. So I didn't know how to be a father. Uh, I was just kind of, I had God and Andy Griffith, you know. I just did the best I could. And here he is on how this song started. 
I was playing my guitar, but kind of praying, and I was looking for an answer to this question. How can you be that mad at somebody and still love them so much? And that's where that song started, and the answer that came back was, that's how God loves you. Here's what Barker said he was trying to accomplish with his song. This is not a preachy song, but it's got a positive message in it. And, and that's, it was subtle. It was not planned that way. When George Strait did it, it reached millions of people, more than I ever would have reached with a pulpit with a little bit of good news for everybody. Did he ever think George Strait would record this song? I didn't. I didn't because it was so internal for me. It was such a personal thing. And I, I thought, I didn't, it didn't even occur to me to pitch it to him, that anybody would ever record this because it was so personal to me. Now, George and I are the same age. And his life, family-wise, has been in about the same place mine has been. Right. Uh, his his uh, children were a little younger than mine. But my mother insisted that I send it to him. He had already recorded Baby Blue, so it was... Not illogical for me to send it, but it's just not something I thought would happen. My mother said, you really need to send it to him. And uh, golly, he heard it. And there was a line in it that when I became a father in the spring of 69, which was accurate to me and not far off from George. But he said, man, that really makes me sound old. You know, So <laughs> I had to change that line to spring of 81. We knocked off about yeah. 12 years there, <laughs> made him a little younger. But he did record it and he heard it, uh, my demo thing on it, which was a guitar vocal. He said that. Sounds a little like Kenny Rogers to me too much. So I went into County Q Studios here in Nashville. And uh, Paul and Scott that run that place at the time, it was both Paul and Scott, worked with me on retracking that song three different times to get it out of that kind of Kenny Rogers vein and get it into a straight thing. And then he recorded it. And it it was a huge hit. I mean, it just had to, the mail that we got back on that was so what I never dreamed of. It's it's. Uh, Touched a lot of people. And here is Aaron Barker talking about, well, his life. You know, Bart, I wanted to be a preacher when I was a kid. I wanted to go to seminary, and hormones got in the way. I got my girlfriend <laughs> pregnant, got married at 16. And then I found myself in a rock and roll band touring for 20 years, and my only consolation was, I guess I'm where I'm supposed to be. And now let's take it out with the rest of the song, George Strait's Love Without End, Amen. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the story of a song, Aaron Barker's story, here on Our American Stories. And when I thought my patience had been tested to the end, I took my daddy's secret and I passed it on to him. I said, let me tell you a secret about a father's love. Secret that my daddy said was just between us. I said daddies don't just love their children every now and then. It's a love without end, amen. It's a love without end, amen. Last night I dreamed I died and stood outside those pearly gates When suddenly I realized there must be some mistake If they know half the things I've done they'll never let me in And then somewhere from the other side I heard these words again 
They said, let me tell you a secret about a father's love A secret that my daddy said was just between us You see, daddies don't just love their children every now and then It's a love without end, amen 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 Tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. See on the portals, He's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Alan Jackson singing the hymn softly and tenderly as he sings everything straight as an arrow. And this is our final thought segment. And this final thought segment comes from a student at Hillsdale College named Shiloh Carosa. I was up there in Michigan teaching for two weeks a group of young students about storytelling. And I asked each of them a simple question. What are you going through? Tell me a story. We started putting different stories on the board. Shiloh was very quiet. After two classes, I sort of gave her some space. When everybody left, I approached her. And I said, what's up? What do you got? I haven't heard you from you during the class. And She said, my, my dad's dying. We found out he had cancer, and he's not going to make it through the spring. I said, well, you're going through something. I said, why don't we write about it? Why don't you sit down and think about what you might want to do, what you might want to say to him? And so this is the story of Ken Carosa, a man who found himself locked in a battle with terminal brain cancer last spring. After raising a loving family in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Ken suddenly found his efforts redirected to a war he never planned to wage at the age of 58. Ken had spent the last 18 years homeschooling his two children, teaching part-time at Cornerstone University, and ministering in pulpits around Grand Rapids. More than anything, his life had been devoted to investing in other people's souls, striving to reach them and teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ and shower them with the same grace God had given him. In light of Ken's diagnosis, Shiloh decided to pass on his message while reminding her father of the powerful impact he had left on those around him, not least of all, his own family. Here's Shiloh. When my father was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer in 2015, my family knew our lives were going to look very different. No longer would my brother and I have our closest counselor there to help us navigate the rest of our college years and early adulthood. My father would soon find his remaining time riddled with medications, surgeries, and sympathy cards. 
He would be fortunate to reach two years, a number we all despise for its brevity. But my father viewed those two years as a precious window of time in which he could still invest in others, still spread God's mercy, and teach people to live life in such a way that they will be prepared when they lose it. In October of 2015, my father delivered a message to the men of Oak Hill Presbyterian Church titled, Preparing to Cross the Finish Line, which I will be quoting. As a man who spent his entire life devoted to discipling and exhorting others to pursue their creator, he now found himself preaching the importance of being ready to meet their creator. What follows is the message he wanted to leave the world with, a parting challenge for those willing to listen. And here are those words of Shiloh's dad. You cannot change the brevity of life. We have to all deal with that at one time or another. And we either get in touch with that or we don't. There's a way to deal with this. It's called preparation. What do you do to prepare for the day when you're told there's going to be a period after your sentence? You're going to be gone? I think what happens is, as Christians, we look at time and say, as long as I have it settled with Jesus, I'm okay. If anything happens, it's not if anything happens. It will happen. So what are you going to do to cultivate your preparation for the transition to the next life? Shiloh's dad continued. Six years ago, I lost two friends of mine in their 40s. It was just over with a heart attack. Both times. I couldn't believe that I had talked to them one day and they were gone the next. Oftentimes we think, As long as I'm saved, whatever happens, happens. But it affects the way you conduct your affairs. You start to ask, how am I going to spend my time? There's some aspect of this that we've got to think constructively about. Now, I'm not saying to get used to it all because death is part of life. Death is not part of life. If death were part of life, we wouldn't have tears. We wouldn't have separations that cause depression for people and all the heartache that goes with it. No, death is unnatural because we no longer live in the perfect world that God made. It's fallen because of sin. Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead so our sin could be forgiven, gives us that opportunity of eternal life again. So you can prepare for death And you need to think about how you look at God. I learned that in spades. Is God being tough? Is he being hard? Is he doing this to be mean? Or is God really at something special? 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 9 says this, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. Do you know what the Apostle Paul is saying? He's saying, you can't see it. You can't hear it. You can't imagine it. But God has something even better where he is. But some of us are alienated from the idea that God is not going to shortchange us. My experience was that God took away the fear when I needed him to do that. I left Grand Rapids going to the University of Michigan hoping that I would have a good outcome from the surgery. But I also knew it was possible 
that I might not be coming back. Having your account settled is a really good thing. I'm not talking about wills and estates. I know I could talk about that, but that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to tell you that God gave me a little bit more time. My question for you is, do you have any idea how long you have? Are you going to get another five years, ten, six months? Maybe you won't be here tomorrow night. What are you doing to make sure that you're ready? Even in death, her dad was teaching and ministering to souls. Let's return back to Shiloh. My father loved people all his life and wanted them to know Christ personally. He provided my brother and me with a tangible example of living, resilient faith. He taught us to face life with the courage and confidence that God will carry us through any storm we face, even if it's the storm that ends our life. He taught us to live each day intentionally, to be ready, and to hold nothing back because we never know if we'll have tomorrow. As his daughter, I can say that he held nothing back in raising my brother and me. When he returned home from his first surgery, he opened up about his own feelings. He told me he was satisfied with the way he'd spent his life as a Christian. And knowing what he'd done, I could see why. He'd pastored a church. He'd taught at a Christian university. He'd spread the gospel through the radio and written publication. But when he sat across from me that day, he didn't mention any of those things. He looked me in the eye and said, You and your brother are my best investments. When I remember those words, I'm reminded of the years he spent homeschooling us. The evenings we went fishing in the lake. The times he took us camping, even though he never cared for life in a tent. The advice he was always so willing to dispense when we needed it. The late night conversations when we were too engrossed to look at the clock. All the nights he and my mom tucked us into bed. Looking ahead, we don't know how much time my father has left. Perhaps only a matter of months. No, he will probably not walk me down the aisle. No, he will not see his grandchildren. But compared to what he's done for us in the time he had, those things become pretty small. He gave us his parting message as a reminder to use the time we have. So I want to take this opportunity to remind him of the meaning he poured into my life. Thanks, Dad. And beautifully done, Shiloh. And Ken, her father. My goodness, what a thing all of us want our daughters to say. She said, as his daughter, I can say that he held nothing back in raising my brother and me. She also said, he looked me in the eye and said, you and your brother are my best investments. Beautiful. Life is short, and it seems too short when you share it with people you love. But Ken Carroza's life serves as testament to the power of God's grace and the importance of being ready.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, our special Father's Day celebration. And in this particular case, something that's often overlooked, stepdads, and sharing his stepfather's story is our own Jesse. Take it away, Jesse. It's that time of year again when many of us who are lucky enough to have had a father pay our respects in the form of greeting cards, a phone call, maybe an obligatory tie or a new wallet. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, as of the year 2014, 23.6% of U.S. children, or 17.4 million of them, live without fathers. You might be thinking, you know, big deal, right? I mean, there have been countless stories of single mothers raising overachievers who went on to accomplish great things in life. While that might be the case in some circumstances, in 2011, children living in female-headed homes with no spouse present had a poverty rate of 47.6%. This is over four times the rate of children living in married couple families. And it's not just about money. Anyone paying attention to what happens to kids who grow up without at least some form of father figure know how it can screw with a child's life long into adulthood. It's a big problem, and it's a problem that could have very easily changed the course of my life if it had not been for my dad. I want to make a distinction here that's very important. There's a big difference between having a dad and having a father. You see, when I was growing up, because of circumstances that were beyond my control as a kid, my father was not present. Even though I would thankfully get to know my biological father later on in life, back in the early 80s, it would have been just my mom and I had it not been for my stepdad who came in to assume the role. Now, I've never called him my stepdad. To me, he was always dad. Though my mother made sure when the time was right to let me know that I had a biological father, as far as I was concerned at that age, Dad was dad, and my father was some distant concept that I wouldn't face for many years to come. Mom likes to remind me of the time when I was about five years old when her and I were shopping in Sears when a little girl asked me where my mother and father were. I pointed to mom and said, that's my mother. I don't know where my father is, but my dad is at work. Dad was there. My dad. His name is John Edwards. Not the politician or the TV psychic, I might add. While my mom and I had dark hair and olive-toned skin, he's as blonde and pale as a cave-dwelling newt of Finnish descent. She turned me into a newt! A newt! I got better. We like to bake in the hot summer sun at the beach. He likes to sip tea on a cold, cloudy afternoon in a remote cabin with a good book. As I got older, I would start to notice other differences as well. While he was a hard-working, analytical man of the church who rarely showed emotions, I was more of an emotional dreamer who would much rather work indoors as opposed to manual labor. He was the worship leader at our non-denominational church. We would attend church every Sunday morning, evening, and Wednesday night for the first 16 years of my life. An electrician by trade, he worked hard to put the food on the table, and we never went without a meal. Even if the meal sometimes was top ramen or popcorn, we were a happy little family, just the three of us. His hands were always blistered and cracked from working outdoors day in and day out. His back would go out from crawling under houses or in attics all day running wires. But he always got the job done. And he always did it right the first time. Now, we weren't rich. We weren't poor. But he did manage to take us to Disneyland several times over the years. And we always went on summer vacation. As far as I'm concerned, he did a great job at everything he did. That's not to say we didn't have our struggles. While my mom would say yes to just about everything, his job seemed to be the great denier of everything fun I wanted to do at the time. 
Which is probably the typical role of mom and dad looking back on it now. Mom says yes and dad says no. Normal. This was especially difficult for me at that time in every young man's life when he begins to push away from his parents to establish some form of independence. It all came to a head one day when I was about 15 years old. It was Sunday morning, and we had all dressed up, ready to go to church. I don't remember why, but that morning I had decided to make a stand and not attend the service. Mom said yes, Dad said no. What happened next was one of the most regrettable things I've ever said in my life. You're not my father. I remember the look of shock in his eyes that turned to anger as he began to give chase for a well-deserved whooping of some sort. Probably an open-hand spanking that never hurt because his hands were too big. You have to have small hands to give a spanking, otherwise the air just cushions the blow. Never mind the fact that I was 15 and at this point in my life, a spanking did little, if anything, to correct my behavior. But what else could he do? So I ran away to the neighbor's house where I would stay frequently in those years to avoid my mean old dad. We got over it. Like so many families get over such trivial squabbles. But those words, you're not my father. They stuck with me in a very dark way. I shouldn't have said it. For some reason, it probably hurt me more to say those words than it was for him to hear it. At least, that's what I tell myself to make it sting less. To this day, it gives me a sick feeling in my gut just to think about it. Here was this guy that had sacrificed so much just to put food on the table and a roof over our heads. And more importantly, raised me as his own son despite all of our differences. And I had the nerve to say those four words to him just because I didn't want to go to church. Remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Psalm chapter 25, verse 7. But there is a silver lining to this little drama. You see, I had a dad, which is much more than a lot of kids in this country can say. He wasn't just some guy that my mother was dating or someone that was just there to be my mother's husband. He was there, in the trenches, doing the hard work, the dirty work, saying no, being the guy who says no isn't easy, but it's necessary. I would go on to establish a meaningful relationship with my biological father. We talk often and meet up once in a while when he takes my family out to lunch or dinner. I even lived with him for a short time when I was 17. I love him. But there's a distinction to be made here between fathers and dads. Anyone can be a father. Not everyone can be a dad. I love my dad. Without him, I would not be sharing this story with you today. I was 16 years old working at a grocery store in Medford, Oregon called Food for Less as a bag boy after dropping out of school because it was insanely boring to me and I wanted to make money, not learn what a peninsula was for the 30th time. After I befriended a local DJ who was set up in the parking lot at a canned food drive for the homeless, he invited me to be part of his weekday morning show at a local radio station called Power 93 KTMT. (laughs) It was an unpaid internship. I stood around and brought the DJ coffee, donuts, and weed once in a while just to keep my foot in the door. And every day at 4 a.m., my dad would get up and drive me down to the station because he knew I wanted to be there. It might not seem like much to some, But it meant the world to me at the time, and it still does to this day. Because of this selfless act at a time when he and I didn't get along too well, I'm now able to take care of my family because of all the sacrifices he made that I took for granted growing up. I now reap the benefits of his labor. 
because he never gave up on me even when I had given up on him. I'm now able to see why he said no so often when my mother said yes. When I yelled out in that tearful fit of rage that he wasn't my father, I was right. He's not my father. He's my dad. Only now do I realize that being a dad is infinitely more challenging than being a father. I too now raise a child who is not of my own blood, but I hope to be even half the dad that mine was for me. I don't call him my stepson. He's my son, and I'm his dad. We don't always see eye to eye, and now I find myself being the one who says no, even when his mom says yes. This Father's Day and every Father's Day, let's not forget to give thanks to dads also. The ones who are out there filling that gap. We might not be able to fix fatherlessness in this country or the rest of the planet for that matter, but as men and as fathers, we should all strive to be dads as good as mine. Happy Father's Day, Dad, and thanks for all the sacrifices you made for us over the years. I love you very much, and I consider you to be one of the best friends I've ever known. And I really look forward to the next time we crack open that beer or three or four or ten on the back porch and just sit around talking about life. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, our final segment of our Father's Day celebration. And this last story is about Brett Favre, and we've done an hour on Brett Favre before. What a remarkable athlete. But this time it's about Irvin and Brett. Irvin is his dad. Irvin was his coach. We broadcast out of Oxford, Mississippi, and Brett came out of the little town of Kiln, Mississippi. And his dad, well, this was a tough love relationship. But boy, the dad was always there. And you're going to hear a story that you're not going to believe. And Brett got the toughest news a boy can get when he found out his father had died of a heart attack on December 21st, 2003. The following day, the Green Bay Packers were scheduled to play on Monday Night Football against the Oakland Raiders. Favre had a decision to make on whether to play in that game or head back home right away. The night before the game, he stood in the locker room in front of all of his teammates and coaches and told them he was going to play. And on December 22, 2003, on national television, Favre threw on the pads and strapped on the helmet and gave one of the most memorable performances in NFL history. And the fact that he ran through that tunnel of guys introduces a starter. And the Raider fans, as brutal as they can be, cheered for him and gave him a standing ovation. I mean, that that may have been the greatest play of the whole game. I was so worried that I would lay an egg in that game. Butterflies is an understatement. It's the most nervous I've ever been. There's no roadmap for this, and how he does it, I have no idea. The throw he made was phenomenal. When he threw that and Wesley caught it, 
you know, and Brett pointed to the sky, and I think he pointed up towards Deanna in the, in the box, and I just knew that, you know, his dad was looking down on him, and he was thinking about his father. He probably, in the back of his mind, said, that one was for you. If there was ever divine intervention, he was there that, that night. Because under the perfect circumstances, I've never been able to do what I've done in that game. And the way the guys just kind of rose up to the challenge was amazing. I talked to the receivers before the game and told them, hey, anything he throws, we catch. I don't care what it is, behind us or by head. If we have to get on the ladder, jump on the guy's shoulders, we're going to catch the ball. That is the fourth time they've converted third and 11 or more. It's far going deep into double coverage, and it is caught by Javon Walker in front of two Raiders for a touchdown. You bring this script to a studio, and they throw it out. I mean, this is like fantasy. We go out there for the extra points, and I had tears coming down my eyes, and I look over at Doug to nod to say we're ready for the kick, and he had tears coming down his eyes, and this is you know, why we're on the field kicking an extra point, so it meant a lot to us to have him succeed to the level he did. Everybody wants to know, you know what kind of player Brett Favre is and what kind of man he is, and, and to handle that situation the way he did, that to me is, is, is being a leader. It's a game that I'll never forget. Well, I, I knew my dad would want me to play, and, um, you know, I love him so much and, and, and love this game. And it's, 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 uh, it's meant a great deal to me, to my dad, and to my family. And, and um, I didn't expect this type of performance, but I know he was watching tonight. For him to take that stage and play the way he played, I, I think, uh, just adds to his legend. You know, I wanted to, to leave that game and be proud of the way I played and, and want him to say, hey, he played well. But no one could have imagined, including me, that it would turn out that way. And Favre threw for 399 yards that night, 311 of those coming in the first half. Four touchdowns all coming in the first half as well, leading the Packers to a 41-7 victory. I love that line by Al Michaels. He said, you bring this script to a studio and they throw it out. At his Hall of Fame induction, Brett Favre tells of the conversation between him and his wife, Deanna, on the plane after that Oakland game and how his father had helped him become one of the all-time great quarterbacks. So Deanna says to me on the plane, you know, your dad had said to me that he had hoped or could not wait for the day that you were inducted into the Hall of Fame so he could introduce you. And up until that moment, I had never thought about the Hall of Fame. And I mean no disrespect to the Hall of Fame. I say this with the utmost respect for all you guys. I had dreamed of playing the NFL, believe me, way more than I thought about my, my schoolwork. I thought about being Archie Manning, running around throwing underhand passes. I thought about being my childhood favorite, Roger Stallback throwing it to Preston Pearson or Drew Pearson, handing it off to Tony Dorsett, being Kenny Stabler coming out of the tunnel. I'd, I'd thought of those things so many times, but I never thought of the Hall of Fame until that moment. And so a new goal had entered my mind then and there. And I said to myself, I will make it to the Hall of Fame. 
that I would make it to the Hall of Fame so I could acknowledge the fact of how important he was. <clears throat> He's trying to keep it together. This is tougher than any third and 15, I can assure you. So I could not acknowledge the importance of him in my career and my life. And so then and there, in that moment on that plane, I was determined for selfish reasons to get to this point, to acknowledge how important he was. I would not be here before you today without my father. There's no doubt whatsoever. As Brett continued his speech, he had a story of his dad, a story no one else had ever heard before. And one more thing about my father, and this is something I've never told anyone, including Deanna. My dad was my high school football coach. He was the head football coach. He coached me and my two brothers. But I, I, didn't, I never had a car growing up. I always rode to and from school with my father in his truck, and so he was always the last to leave the building because he had to turn the lights off, lock up, and then we made our way home. So it was the last high school football game of my high school career. And although I don't remember how I played before, and I don't remember how I played in the last game, what I do remember is sitting outside the coach's office say on a Wednesday, waiting for my father to come out so we could leave. It was dark, and I overheard my father talking to the three other coaches, and I heard him, and I, I assume I didn't play as well the previous week only because of what he said. And he said, I can assure you one thing about my son. He will play better. He will redeem himself. I know my son. He has it in him. And I never let him know that I heard that. I never said that to anyone else, but I thought to myself, that's a pretty good compliment, you know. I, I, my chest kind of swole up, and I, again, I never told anyone, but I, I never forgot that statement and that comment that he made to those other coaches. And I want you to know, Dad, I spent the rest of my career trying to redeem myself. I'm working on it. I'm trying to get through it. Uh, but I spent the rest of my career trying to redeem myself and make him proud. And I hope I succeeded. Thank you. Thank you. So never discount the importance of being a father and statements that you make. 
whether you think your kids here, just you're very important to your children. And the lesson is we come and go very quickly. So love them each and every day. And you couldn't say it better. And so we leave it with Brett Favre's words. Love him every day. And your words matter. This is Lee Habib. Brett Favre's story. His dad, Irvin's story. Here on Our American Story. Celebrating Father's Day. For the entire show. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. To listen to all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.